What up all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 111 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Nathan Rose. Nathan is originally from New Zealand. However, now he resides in Georgia, Tbilisi, Georgia, the country. He used to be an investment banker, but he gave it all up to follow his passion of writing books. And these books are really interesting because they don't have a similar theme in common, but they all deliver a lot of valuable information for those people searching for the topics within those niches, which we'll get into during the episode. Please be aware that we are doing the episode in a cafe, in the garden of a cafe in Chiang Mai. Chiang Mai is a little bit noisy, but it's, again, just adding a little bit of atmosphere to the episode, and it's a really rad episode, so please don't let that bother you. Please remember to follow Misfits and Rejects on Instagram. If you're a first-time listener, please subscribe. Pull out your phone and hit the subscribe button. And after the episode is done, if you like what you heard, if you are motivated, if you're inspired by what Nathan has to say, please leave a comment. Please rate the episode. That really helps me in iTunes and ratings in general. So please take the time to do that for me. One thing I like about this episode is Nathan gives us a very clear idea about how he did it. And I think makes it easy for people to follow in his footsteps. He loves this quote, which he cites throughout the episode, which is to be violent and original in your work, you need to be regular and organized in your life. And I can really see that that's how he structured his time. That's how he structures his time on the road and how he's accomplishing what he is accomplishing with authoring these books that he is authoring right now and making a living traveling around the world and living the life that he's always dreamed of. So with that said, Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Nathan Rose. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am with Nathan Rose, a digital nomad and author, traveling around the world, living the dream life. The dream life that wasn't always a dream life for him. I mean, just from what I know about him, little by little, like I'm getting to piece together this idea that maybe he was in a, a situation in the past, a banking situation or... Just something that he had to come to a point and decide that he really wanted to go after his hopes and dreams, and, and he has done that, which is why I brought him on the show. And Nathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Chapin. Great to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you, dude. Thank you for joining me. And the audience, um, we're always excited to hear like what, what people are doing out there, because one thing that caught my attention through our conversations, and just so the audience knows, Nathan and I, as many of the next following guests, we spent 10 days together in this uh, Get Shit Done retreat, and we all just pushed really hard trying to get our online businesses or whatever we were doing to another level, and... Nathan was sitting next to me pretty much the whole time, typing away on his computer, uh, working on his uh, course, his books. And when I really learned about the different books that you've written, none of them had really anything in common, <laughs> except for they're informational. They're always providing a lot of value and information. But it was striking to me that some of the topics that you chose were just so out of left field and, and interesting. I thought it'd be even cooler to kind of have you on the show and pick your brain. So again, welcome to the show. And I mean... Can you talk to us a little bit about your life pre-being a digital nomad? Yeah, so I'm from New Zealand, um, and yeah, basically I was at university and had this goal of getting into investment banking. This is the 
dream job for people who are studying what I was studying. I've always been kind of fascinated by money and how it works, the psychology behind it. And I actually succeeded in that goal. I actually got into investment banking, which is something that only like three or four people in the class did out of 200 or so. So it was pretty competitive. Um, but then it wasn't at all what it was cracked up to be. I knew that it would be hard work, but there's perhaps a difference between the kind of hard work where you're chasing something of your own volition and, and following instructions from other people, right? So that was my background. Um, I was in the corporate, not even the corporate nine to five. This was more like the corporate eight till 10, right? Working like a slave, uh, making good money for sure. And, you know, a privileged position to be in. But after, I would say after about eight or nine months, I knew that it was something that I wouldn't be able to do for the long term. But I also thought leaving after eight or nine months wouldn't look good for the CV. Uh, so I did actually stick at it for two more years after I already knew that it was not for me, um, which were two pretty awful years. But hey, that was my mindset back then, that I needed to have the CV looking good and looking polished. And eventually when I quit, I, uh, I quit with nothing else lined up and just went traveling. So what, yeah, what year was that when you quit? Because you're 32 now. Yeah, so I quit in 2014 when I was 27. Wow. Um, and you quit with obviously a little bit of money in the bank that you could hit the road with. And did you have an idea of what you were going to do? I want to circle back to a little bit about the banking, but when, when you did decide to you know, quit, did you have a, a little nest egg that you were willing to go out and use while you kind of searched for what you wanted to do? Yeah, I, had, plan? I had some savings, yeah. So I was able to have the luxury of not needing to make income right away. Like how long do you think until you were going to need to start really thinking about making money? Well, I was hanging out in Southeast Asia, so I, I had something like a year of savings that I could hang out in Southeast Asia and if I wanted to and live on the cheap. Kind of a, a strange thing to go from putting on a suit and tie every day to traveling around $5 backpacking dorms in Cambodia and Thailand, but... I, n I never had a problem with that. Like I never had expensive tastes, even though I was even though I was a banker. Um, yeah, eating street food in Thailand, it was no problem either. That yeah. sounds awesome, dude. Um, I just want to quick, quickly circle back to the banking thing because you said something interesting to me that you were really interested in the psychology of money. Yeah. What does that mean? Like what what describe that to us and how that all fit together? So money is a very interesting thing, not just because of what it can do, like by having the possession of it, but I think it shapes people's behavior in very interesting ways. So I've always been interested in economics, right? Like how does money or incentives or the way that things are structured inside an economy lend itself to the way that an economy or, or people end up behaving? So through banking, my idea was that I would be able to get more into that, but perhaps one of the sources of the frustration was it was, it was much more about the pursuit of it for its own sake. So I've been, always been more, I've always been more interested in money, and like two of the books that I've written already are in that field of finance, um, and I am obviously need to earn money to, to live, of course, but I've 
always found just the concept of money and what it means to be much more interesting for me. And that just, it really was just when you're in the industry, just the pursuit of more money. That's the only goal, the sole goal that you had as an investment banker or the, the structure that you found yourself in? Yeah, there's the pursuit of it for the team, right? Like they were, it, it was all about the next deal. How can we increase our fee? How can we pull more money out of the clients? It just didn't gel with me. Like I, I was always a bit of an outsider because I would think differently from them. Um, and the kinds of questions or things that I found myself interested were often not the task that the job needed to be done involved. So yeah, it was, it was a situation where uh, there was a mismatch between what I wanted to do and what the job required at times. Was it difficult? Because you said you stayed two, two extra years after you knew for sure you were done. That final cut, the way you did it, was that hard? to actually make that final decision and really walk up to your boss or however you did it and say, I'm done? Actually, no. <laughs> and how did you do it? Did you just like classic put your two weeks in and say, I'm done? Um, I gave a little more notice than that. Um, I, it was just one, I, I'd been planning to do it for a while and it came after the annual, um, it was like an annual review, right? Where you get given the feedback from the boss from your other colleagues about what you need to do, what you need to improve. And I just had this moment where I, I heard the things that I needed to do, I heard the things that I needed to improve, and I was just like, this is not something that I'm willing to do. Like, these things they want me to do is not something I'm willing to do anymore. So the very next day, I invited the, well, the two directors in the office um, into the room and said, I think my time's up, I'm going to go traveling. And I've, uh, I've never regretted it. That's beautifully said, man. I like that. Um, let's dive into a little bit about, you know, I know you have traveled in the past. Like traveling wasn't, this wasn't your first big adventure, right? Mm -hmm. Out of, out of New Zealand, right? You'd already been out before. Cause it sounds like you and your father have done some pretty cool adventures together. Are you, you kind of arch travel companions? Is that right? Yeah, we have been. We've done a trip every year since I quit in 2014. And normally this trip involves motorcycles. So right after I quit, he and I went to Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, and bought a couple of $300 Honda Wind motorcycles. <laughs> they call them the Frankenstein bike because they're, uh, they're put, kind of put together with spare parts from all over the country. And there's not a lot of Japanese parts still in most of these bikes, especially when you can buy them for 300 bucks. They're pretty unreliable, but we drove those things all the way from Ho Chi Minh City to Hanoi. So south to North Vietnam over the course of five weeks. And then every year since then we've done, uh, let's see, in 2015 it was Turkey. In 2016 we did a trip around New Zealand. 2017 Nepal. And this year we did Georgia, the country of Georgia, which is where I'm based now. That's so cool. So, because my dad and I do bicycles now. This is our first trip. We did bicycles this year before I came to Thailand. Beautiful experience. But when you're doing, say, the, the motorcycle trip through Turkey, are you going through agencies and or buying bikes and then selling them? Like, how do you get the motorcycles, acquire them, and then get them back? We've done different things. So in Vietnam, we did uh, buying them and then selling them at the end. I mean, they were $300, so we didn't really care too much what we could get for them at the end. In Turkey, we just hired them and returned them back to base. Uh, in New Zealand, Dad already has motorcycles, so we just used those. And then in Nepal, we did a tour. So we were actually part of an organized tour with ourselves and 
five or six other people um, with a guide. And then, yeah, in Georgia, we also just hired them and self, self-guided ourselves. That's super cool, man. So the, the wanderlust, did that come with continually working or traveling with your pops, or had you been always traveling with as a younger man? Did you do like the classic finish school and go on a year trip around the world or something like that? I didn't do that. No, I got pretty much straight from university into, um, into banking, so I never really had that big trip. Uh, not after the end of high school either. I was, I've always been a pretty hard worker, actually. Like uh, I just knuckle down and, and, and get into what I'm doing. Um, yeah, maybe I should have done more travel when I was younger, but I'm making up for it now. <laughs> no kidding. Because uh, you've been on the road now, what, literally for the last four years? Four or five years? I've been, so for four years I've been doing this online business stuff. And I would say I've been nomadic for uh, like two years of that. And for t- the other two years, most recently, I've preferred to have a home base. Um, I mean, I have some thoughts on this as to, this is a pattern that a lot of people take actually like once they've quit their job they've had the the crisis moment where they can't take it anymore and they fill this void with with travel and travel's great it's a lot of new experiences and and a lot of new friendships that you make but i think over time like if if you're doing some work that you're passionate about you 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 actually get to a point where your work can become more fulfilling than than travel um so travel has its place still in my life t- totally but my home base has been in georgia for the last couple of years okay cool has it always been when you're doing the online thing about books or have you ventured into other aspects of online business i tried a few things so when i first quit my job i had no idea about anything about digital marketing i think i'd made i think i made a website once before but if you asked me what seo stood for i probably wouldn't have known <laughs> so, so you weren't like a computer nerd like, no, you, okay. not, not in that way. No, I, I like playing computer games, but I never really knew how computers worked or I was never a coder or any of that sort of stuff. So what I tried at first, and what I had some success with pretty quickly actually, was, was taking those skills from banking and, and then selling them, right, like as a freelancer. So what I did initially was I, yeah, I, built, I did build myself a new website. I got myself a logo. I've got myself a company registered, but the website was in Weebly. I didn't know WordPress. I probably didn't even know it existed, let alone how it worked. But I got up and running with a basic website, um, and then I started to call people. I started to send out cold messages, and I just said, hey, I'm going to offer this kind of banking service where, where I help startups and growing companies with um their financial models, uh, with their presentations, with talking to investors, right? Because many startups are from a, a sales background or a product development background. So when they come to get investment, they don't really know what to do. So pretty quickly, I was able to contact crowdfunding platforms and they had startups that needed this kind of work done. Uh, so it was actually surprising that within just a few weeks, I was already making money online and that was a, a really exciting moment. The books came later. They, the first book was about 18 months in, and the idea was for that first book about equity crowdfunding to be an authority-building tool. This is the main thing that most people think of as the benefit when they uh, think about writing a book. Like a book can be a thing that lets clients know about your expertise, 
it can be a gateway to getting more blog posts or getting more appearances on podcasts. Um, but yeah, long answer to your question. The books were about 18 months into my into my journey. Got it. So the, the freelancing kind of was the foundation, yep. a gateway into the digital nomad lifestyle. Yep. And then after that, it was straight into books that you found success with as well right away. So it doesn't sound like you really failed too many times on, on the digital nomad game. Oh, uh, well, uh, no, no, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely not true. Um, I've failed plenty of times, and I think anyone who gets into this has to be prepared for some setbacks and some frustration. What was, can you give us an example of one failure that still stings maybe a little bit or hmm or that you wish you were sure was going to be a successful venture and then it just wasn't even close okay so the first book was successful in an unexpected way so i talked before about how the book is meant to be a tool into authority i think what i hoped the book would do is this would, is the equity crowdfunding this is the equity crowdfunding book okay. yeah i hoped that the equity crowdfunding book would mean that i would not have to do as much phone outreach i would, I would characterize myself as more of a builder than as a salesperson so phone calls are something that i don't consider a strength i'm working on it um but I hope that I'd have more people come to me as a result of the book. What I've since learned is that the book means that your outreach will be more effective, but it doesn't mean you don't have to do it. What it did mean, though, with that first book was I saw for the first time passive income coming through. Not big numbers by some of the people uh, I know who are running much larger online business operations, but still it gave me a taste and I really enjoyed doing the book. So. I decided that I'd double down on that uh, and, and create more books, create more passive income. And this is when I was starting to learn about things like keyword research and uh, what it takes to build sales copy and make people convert when they arrive on your page. Um, I mean, everything to do with a book is really is sales. It's so interesting. I had the exact same epiphany literally yesterday. Mm -hmm. Coming off of the high that I just came off of working with you all, you know, the success I had of basically making passive income off of what I created with my, my course sales, but then realizing that once I stopped marketing it, the sales stopped. And I've come to the realization, like, my business now is like, I'm an online marketer of my products that I create. And that's going to probably be my full-time job, you know, is online marketing of the things that I create. And it was like, like you said, like I had a, a vision of not having to do certain things once I created this kind of passive income stream. And now coming to the conclusion, like, you know, the, the one thing that I was hoping not to have to do is the one thing that I'm going to be doing now, probably for the rest of my life <laughs> to a certain extent. So I can really relate to what you said. Um, second book, which is not related at all to the first book. And that is Chess Opening Names, which is a beautiful title and a beautiful sounding book. Can you talk about that and why you were motivated to write that? Yeah. So like I said, uh, after the crowdfunding book, I saw the first passive income coming through. And to give listeners a bit of context, it was in the order of two or $300 a month. So not a lot of money, but I really enjoyed the work that went into creating that first book. And my thinking was that if I could create let's say 10 or 20 books which at the rate that I was writing them might have taken let's say three or four years then I could have well 10 or 20 times 
two or three hundred dollars a month adds up to five or ten grand a month, which would be pretty nice as a as a base to work from. So by this point, I was learning about keyword research, as I mentioned. So I, I, I was like, okay, what's a topic that has low competition that I'm interested in enough to write about, and I can create a, another another one of these two or three hundred dollar a month books. And what I came up with was chess opening names. So the game of chess has certain opening moves that are named after famous cities or after famous people. And I'd never known why it was called the Sicilian Defence or why it was called the Royal Appears Opening. And as I asked around and I did my research, it seemed like there was no book about this. And chess is one of these topics where a chess master will spend five years writing his book and the cover will be terrible. Um, there'll, be, there'll be no marketing put into it at all. So I thought, okay, I, I know a little bit about digital marketing, about how to make an appealing cover, how to put keywords into a title. So I did write that book. It took me about three or four months, and uh, it still does very well. It's Last time I checked, it was a top 10 book in the chess category. So it's kind of funny to see myself. And again, for context, I'm not a professional chess player or even a even have any pretensions of being. I'm an enthusiastic amateur and I'm, I'm okay. But uh, yeah, I wrote this book about history, so I didn't really need to teach people how to play at all. And this what, book continues to do well. What was the most interesting discovery you made on chess names? Um, that most of the people who got a move named after them ended up going mad. Like, wow. there's, there's something about chess that seems to warp the mind if you get too much into it. So all these guys, and they are all guys, there's no women. I mean, there, there are women chess players, but all the world champions and uh, moves that have got some person named after them um, are all men. And many of them died of depression or they died very young or they just went insane. So <laughs> maybe it's a warning to people that... Uh, this game should not become too much of an obsession. Like, well, there was one... Okay, here's a funny story. One guy was so into chess that he had two cats and he named one of them Chess and he named the other cat Checkmate. And when he went to the opera as part of a world tournament that he was part of, <laughs> he, he just had no interest at all in the opera and he brought his pocket chess set along with him and he was playing against himself with chess while there's a performance going on on stage but he just had no interest in anything outside of it just obsessed yeah that's that's so cool dude i mean i love the jump because it's not related at all really to the first book but it's a successful book it sounds like and you're on your way to book 10 but we have a few more books to go through i want the audience to know more about so third one is the crypto what the crypto intro the crypto intro this is about cryptocurrencies right so the thing that i learned after the second book so after the first book, I learned about keyword research and how to do that whole thing. After the second book, I learned something about branding, which is that if you create books which are too much all over the map, then your efforts are not really building on each other. So I had no real plan to build a business out of the, out of the uh, chess opening names. So I thought, well, what, what do I want to become known for? And I am still interested in finance, like despite my bad experience in banking. Um, I, I still love it. I'm still fascinated by it. I think it can help startups and growing companies to get what they need. So 
Yeah, right around last year, the end of last year, crypto was a hot topic on everyone's mind, and I wanted to learn about it too, but I just couldn't find a good book myself that explained how to get started with it. There's a lot of books about like the cultural impact of crypto. Um, there's a lot of books about the programming side of things, uh, which non-programmers won't understand. But if you're just a, a lay person who wants to get started with crypto for the first time, there's not a lot there. So I decided that I would find out about this thing by writing about it. I thought there was a need for a book like this. And that's exactly what I did. So I, I feel as though the crowdfunding and the crypto is sort of related because they're both about new ways of doing money or doing finance. Mm -hmm. And so now with the knowledge that you gained from the crypto book, are you, in, are you invested in crypto? Yeah, I am. I've, uh, I've seen my holdings go all the way up and all the way back down again. For, for, <laughs> I, got in, I got in towards the end of last year when crypto, when Bitcoin, let's say, was at about $6,000 and it's thereabouts there now. So it seems to have stabilized, but it got all the way up to about 20 grand at one point. So like everyone, I thought I was a genius, uh -huh, but but you didn't Just, get out, so you weren't there. Didn't, I didn't get out, so I wasn't so much of a genius. I had a buddy actually get out with a million, so that was pretty cool. He still has a lot left over. Yeah. So, but yeah. Um, the last book, or not the last book, obviously, of 10 coming, but the next book is Citizens of the World. Yeah, so this one, this one is actually more of a commentary, a little bit like the books about crypto have written about the social impact or the... Um, yeah, the, the uh, influence of crypto, there have been books like that, but I feel as though there hasn't been a really good book about digital nomads and how their location-independent lifestyles, or I should say how our <laughs> location-independent lifestyles, are causing some pretty interesting changes in the world, like exporting radical globalization, causing a lot of opportunity for some people. Uh, it's going to be a threat for other people. But I want to marry that with some of the really entertaining and fascinating stories from from the frontier of this gold rush, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Because um, most, most, most people, when they think of making money online, like if they know anything at all, probably they're thinking of someone doing a travel blog, hanging out on a beach in Thailand, and uh, making a little bit of money, but really sort of just scraping by. I mean, just this morning... posing in front of photos. Yeah, right, right. The, the classic photo of themselves working on their laptop next to a beach. But you and I this morning, before we jumped on this uh, podcast, we, we spoke to a guy who is um, talking about and doing six-figure investments in China. Like, I personally know people who are doing this location-independent lifestyle who are making serious money and with really strange business models, like super entertaining ones. I'll give, I'll give an example. Um, there's a guy who is doing uh, knitting equipment to grandmothers. He's got a huge Facebook following. He's, got, he's making a ton of money. I don't know how much exactly, but he's got a team working for him, so it would be at least six figures, probably high six figures. And he's selling knitting equipment to grandmothers. And he's this 25-year-old guy with his hat on backwards. <laughs> and he's not a grandmother. Even his grandmother doesn't buy the stuff that he does. So he doesn't know very much about his target market, but he does know about digital marketing. So it's stories like this that I'm hoping to showcase in this book. That's beautiful, man. I mean, that's exactly what I 
sought out to find when I kind of came to Thailand because I had I'd been living on the beach in Nicaragua for the last four years and meeting a lot of people posing in front of their camera at the beach saying like hey like this is the life I'm doing this but when I'd ask them how much they would make they're not making any money and coming and finding people who are actually making six figures some are making seven figures like one of the guys in our group you know he's he's trying to transition his business from seven figures to eight figures right now and he sells sleep aid equipment yeah. you know and it's just like so beautiful if you can be get creative and obviously you know the marketing side of things online like your reach is just vast and powerful uh, totally you can access global markets and anyone can do it um i mean i i would say though that i don't have a have a problem with people who are making little money and scraping by like they're obviously pursuing their own passion and um for many people, money's not that important. But I, I think it's really fascinating to look at this digital nomad or online business movement in total, right? Like some people are more motivated by money, others are more motivated by freedom. Um, of course, I think if you can get both, then that's the, the ideal situation. But yeah, this is also like a story of, of how some people are not as comfortable with digital marketing right like i've seen both sides of this world where where people have left the corporate environment and then they need to learn digital marketing skills which hey some people have sort of checked out of consumerism totally and and they're not comfortable with that but they do get hit with the reality that you have to make something that the world wants otherwise no one's gonna no one's gonna put noodles on the table for you Um, it doesn't matter if living in thailand's cheap it's not free so yeah, there's this internal struggle that some people go through too, which I also think is super fascinating. Yeah, and thank you for bringing that into Luke, because I didn't mean to come off sounding like, you know, like, all oh, these people not making any money, yet they're posing like they're living this dream. Like, I, I love and respect them for actually getting out and trying, you know, and, and, and doing what they love, whether they're making, you know, 10 bucks a day or nothing. At least they're out mixing it up and trying to find their footing within this whole digital nomad lifestyle. I mean, I've been there for a long time as well. Um, you know, you made a pretty big decision to settle recently in Georgia. Is that right? Yeah, Georgia, um, the country. Georgia, the country. Yeah, which is yeah, really interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit about that decision? You kind of touched upon it a little bit or alluded to it, where it's like you start realizing that your passion is traveling, but you're more passionate now, maybe your books, and and that becomes a, a way in which you want to kind of settle into a spot and just really focus and not move around so much. So why Georgia? So. There's a quote that I really like, which is, uh, to be violent and original in your work, you need to be regular and orderly in your life. I think it goes in, in phases where you have parts of your life where you're in full travel mode and there are parts of your life where you're in your full creativity mode. Um, so at the moment I'm in creativity mode and I, I think there's a lot of people we know too who to get the maximum out of themselves when they're creating, they need other stuff to be taken care of, like a decent Wi-Fi connection, a good uh, gym, uh, good food to eat, so that they can just hone in on their work. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Like when you find work that is that you're passionate enough about, fantastic. Um, why Georgia? Georgia is a very interesting place. Uh, in that it's had a Eastern European history, right? So it used to be part of the Soviet Union. Like a lot of Eastern Europe, it's coming out of that. It's been 25 years, but the um, 
the remnants of communism are still very much in parts of the national psyche and certainly in the architecture. I think the thing I like about it the most is it felt quite undiscovered. Um, at the time when I decided to settle there, I, I was feeling that as I was traveling around Europe, a lot of European capital cities started to feel quite the same. Like all of them have a Starbucks, all of them have an H&M, all of them have become these uh, global cities. When I went to Tbilisi, it had a very different feeling to it. That um, yeah, the, the national culture was still very strong and it was an exciting time of its history to be there because of so much transition happening. The other thing I like it is despite this really, um, despite this uh, history which is very different to where I'm from, New Zealand, it has something in common in that it's a small country with a lot of really varied geography. Um, so from the capital of Tbilisi you can go up to uh, the mountains, you can go west to these hot springs and you can go east to the wine region. So within a small geography there's a lot of variety. How, what's that distance? Just out of curiosity, like if I want to go wine tasting one day and then go to hot springs another day or the same day, is that possible? Yeah, um, the same day, yeah you could. It's, um, it's probably, from, from Tbilisi it would be three hours to the wine region, three hours to the mountains, and three hours to the hot springs region, but all in different directions. So yeah, you could do it definitely in one day. You could go snowboarding in the morning really early and then shoot down and do hot springs for evening uh, soak. You could. <laughs> um, can you describe a little bit more just about you know, the culture? And I mean, I don't think a lot of people really know much about Georgia except for maybe the past. You said it was Soviet-occupied for a long time. Um, what are some of the, like, is there good food? Are the women just dead, drop dead gorgeous? Like, I mean, what's the overall feel? I know you said it's kind of undiscovered feeling, but um, is it like, you know, like when you land in China, you're like, wow, this is really foreign. <laughs> you know? um, it's not, I mean, if anyone's from uh, Western Europe or, or America, it's, it's foreign, but it's just also comfortable enough. Like the food will be fairly familiar to people, but it's amazing. I mean, it's... It's meat, it's um, fresh vegetables, it's wine. It's not the kind of rice and noodles that you get in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia or in China. But when Georgia was part of the Soviet Union, it was, it was famous among all the other Soviet countries that Georgia was the place to come for the best food. And, and actually, if you go to Russia or the Ukraine or any of those other Soviet countries, very often there'll be all these Georgian restaurants um, because... Everyone knows that that's who makes the best food. Uh, unfortunately, no Georgians have made it to, well, no entrepreneurial restaurant Georgians have made it to New Zealand and opened up restaurants there because that's the one thing, like, well, one of the main things that I miss when I go back to New Zealand is I don't get the Georgian food there. What is a typical dish? Like, what do you miss? Okay, like so I'll, I'll talk about a few of the signature dishes. There's kinkali which is a meat dumpling, often served with a plum sauce or a spicy tomato sauce. There's kachkapuri, which is bread with cheese in the middle, which is not healthy at all, but it's incredibly delicious. And then there'll be uh, shashliki, which is like barbecued meat. And that's often uh, topped off with a Georgian salad, which is tomato, cucumber, and walnut. So that would be a basic, uh, a basic dish. Or a basic mm. spread for uh, a beautiful Georgian meal. 
Sounds I'm heavenly. Ma- I'm making myself hungry just talking <laughs> about it. I don't think there are any Georgian restaurants in Thailand either. I, yeah, I don't know. I saw one. Where was I recently? Oh, and I saw one in um, capital of, of Prague. Uh huh. Yeah, there was one in Prague that my dad and I almost pulled into and had a had a vodka and some food. Is that are they a pretty big vodka drinking culture? Yeah, they call it some um, cha cha. Okay. But yeah, this vodka. is this is wine vodka. Oh, wine vodka. Uh huh. So it's made from fruit, like made from the grape. Grape. Interesting. Um, one aspect of Georgia I want to touch upon, and you don't have to talk about how you're personally involved or not involved, but I know that Georgia offers a lot of benefits to yep. like people in business. Um, and I know there's a lot of digital nomads that are not a lot, but there's people who are residing in Georgia, registering their business in Georgia and, and making a life in Georgia for themselves because the tax benefits and just the lifestyle in general. Um, can you comment on that or say something about that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the lifestyle benefits, it's one thing I didn't talk about before is that it's got a low cost of living. So absolutely. If someone needs a, a place to hang out while they're trying to get something off the ground then Georgia's a great option for that great internet like i said it's um a kind of european culture so if that's more your thing then that's cool yeah from the flag theory and tax perspective georgia has something called territorial taxation which effectively means that you don't pay tax on anything that you earn outside of georgia so if you're an internet entrepreneur you uh you're probably going to need to have a company set up somewhere but then if you want to take any money out of that company and you don't have residency in a country with territorial taxation, so like if you're still a resident of, um, well, the US is a bit different because they've got the passport-based taxation. But if you're a resident of Australia or the UK, then you're going to have to pay tax on what you draw out of your company. So the advantage of getting residency in Georgia or another territorial tax country um, is that you won't be paying tax on that money that at that point so for those who've got like a, a low or no tax company set up partnering that with a Georgian personal residency um, can mean that you escape a lot of that tax system hmm. that's interesting yeah it's come up on the radar recently I've interviewed a few people who are doing are living there for those reasons and um, as I as I venture down this digital nomad rabbit hole, it's interesting to think about those types of strategies to help keep some of the money that you work so hard to earn, you know? Totally. Yep. Um, you know, thank you so much for joining us. If you could give the audience any advice, little closing words of wisdom to maybe take that first step out into the unknown or try to swing the bat at something that they're not really sure about, what would you say? The time that I've always made the most progress is when I've taken action, even though I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. So when I first, really first got started, yeah, I put up that website. I just started calling people even though I didn't know what I was doing. And it actually worked kind of well. I think a trap that I've gotten into is learning more and consuming more knowledge and feeling like that is a good substitute for action. Like I have a problem with perfectionism and maybe some of your listeners can relate that they feel like they need to know more before they take action. But um, there's always more that you can learn, but actually the people who get results are those who do, not the people who um, read and learn. Reading and learning is good too, but make sure you're always taking action at the same time. Beautifully said, brother. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Chapin. Thanks.
Awesome, Nathan. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences, how you're making this work. Listeners, please go down and check out his books and the show notes if you're interested in any of those topics that he's writing about and keep your eyes out for citizens of the world. I think that's going to be really cool to really dive deep into you know, how all these digital nomads are going on the world and designing the lives that they've always dreamed of and making a living doing it. Remember, please, if you're a first-time listener, to pull out your phone and subscribe. If you're a listener in general and you like the message, please rate and comment on this episode. Please follow Misfits and Rejects at Instagram. And if you like what you hear and you want to support on a monthly basis, you can do that at Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. That's a monthly donation, whatever you want, whether it's $1, $5. It's all helpful. It's not expected. I love doing this for you guys. So keep an eye out for the next episode. We have a lot of great episodes coming with all these really fascinating digital nomads who are out there mixing it up, designing their own lives, making very good money while they're doing it in some very interesting niches around the world. And remember, I think you all are so very beautiful, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.